0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. Happy Friday to you. Pleased to be ending the week as we follow everything that's happening in Washington, D.C. this week. Look forward to a weekend, which we hope will give us some kind of a break. From politics, tonyperkins.com is the website for the show. You can watch this and every broadcast there on demand at your convenience. Also, encourage you to download the Stand Firm app wherever you get your apps. Type in Stand Firm and you can keep up on your phone with everything that FRC offers, including the Washington Watch programs. Today on the program, what part of the Affordable Care Act Is the Biden administration trying to change and why? We'll talk about that. Are Texas Democrats going to have to flee the state again? Uh, What's Governor Abbott done? Interesting developments down in the Lone Star State. Should parents change the way they're thinking about their children's education? We'll talk about that in our worldview segment with David Claussen at the end of today's show. But to start off the program, even with the House of Representatives in recess, our elected officials are still making news, and some for not all the right reasons. Freshman Representative Cory Bush has been camping out on the steps of the Capitol to protest the possibility that some people who do not pay their rent could be evicted. While being interviewed about evictions she had some words to say about defunding the police as well. And when asked whether she personally felt the need for police protection,
2: here's what she had to say. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending two hundred thousand, if I spend ten, ten, ten more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police and put that money into social safety net.
1: Joining me now to discuss this and some other nude items as well is Congresswoman Kat Kamek. She is the co-chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus. Congresswoman, welcome back to Washington Watch.
2: Hey, good to be with you. Thank you so much. We're
1: so glad to have you. Thanks for uh, ending your week with us. I know you have other things to do as well. Now, I would love to get your your initial reaction. I saw that you actually uh, were commenting on this on Twitter as well. Uh, what was your reaction to Congresswoman Bush's uh, comments there about defunding the police? <laughs>
2: well, you know I, i'm I'm hoping that they the Democrats make her the spokesman for the party. Um, I think she would do a great job the The second part is obviously, as the wife of a first responder, the defund police movement is exceptionally personal to me, and comments like that are exactly why I fight so hard to defend and protect our first responders and our law enforcement officers. You know, I find it exceptionally hypocritical that a member of Congress who is paying for private security, which is most likely off-duty deputies or officers, is spending to the tune of $70,000 saying, it's okay for me to have protection, but you, average Joe taxpayers, no, you don't deserve it. We're going to defund the officers that protect our communities who need it most. That is coming from the Democratic strongholds all across America, and I think that is something that every American should be thinking about when they go into the polling booth next fall, because that's exactly what their message is. Police for us, but not for you. They want protection, but everyday Americans don't deserve it
1: it seems almost too ironic that they, that they miss the irony. It seems like it's self-parody. But I honestly try to give people the benefit of the doubt uh, when they disagree with me on things. Uh, you talk to your colleagues about this and other issues. What do you think they're trying to accomplish when they say, we need to just defund police and no longer have uh, police enforcement in our cities and our country?
2: You know, I think, honestly, it's it's something much more nefarious. I think it is ultimately about creating a system of dependency. That dependency on government means power. And when you have more than 50 percent of Americans on some form of government assistance somehow beholden to the federal government, that means that they are going to vote in their best interests, which is why I think the Democrats are so hellbent on creating a welfare state, and they can't do that unless they really have dependency from the masses. And so really, this translates into a political end game of total control over America. That is why it is so, so important that we uphold states' rights. We really fight to decouple ourselves from the federal government, make sure that they are staying as as far out of our lives as we possibly can and really sticking to the Constitution and the constitutional principles that have made this country so great. But at the end of the day, when people say, well, I don't understand what their end goal is, I don't understand what the end game is, it's about power, it's about dependency, and it's about control. And if you look at every single one of their policies, be it HR 1 and the attempt to overtake our election systems, defending, I'm sorry, defunding the police, or taking um, our second amendment rights away. You look at all of this, it all points back to a plan of dependency and control.
1: Now, with respect to the defund police movement, do Mm -hmm. do you sense that getting any traction within Congress, even within the Democratic party, or do you think it's going to remain kind of a fringe movement?
2: You know, unfortunately, it did pass the House. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act did pass the House, and it is now sitting in the Senate. Now, right now, what we are seeing in the Senate is a um, Cory Booker uh, placement holder bill. I've had some pretty concerning conversations with some colleagues on the Senate side who say that they are looking to do a reform bill. Now, the reform bills that I have seen that have both support from Republicans and Democrats are really nothing more than just a defund police movement. They want to turn accreditation over to the NAACP and the ACLU through citizen advisory boards. They want to strip qualified immunity with no caps. They want to take away um, funding mechanisms that put resources in our departments for training, for critical life-saving equipment. And, and there's no question that there can be improvements. There's always room for improvement in everything. But you don't do that by divesting from resources and training. You do it by investing. And so I'm really, really concerned about the fact that there is a bit of a groundswell happening in the Senate right now. There is some momentum happening over there to do a police reform bill. But the type of reforms that they're talking about are exceptionally detrimental. And you're going to continue to see an increase of crime happening across our country, not just from um, a lack of retention and recruitment from our law enforcement, but you look at what's happening at the southwest border, over a million apprehensions that have occurred just this year that those people are now in our communities. That is translating into additional crime. It's translating into more drugs, the need for an increased presence from law enforcement, but instead, like I, like I pointed to earlier, This all points to dependency and control. So I'm very concerned that if the Senate takes up what they call police reform, that will further perpetuate the narrative that we in Congress don't care and that we are looking to defund police. That is something that is exceptionally dangerous. We cannot allow that to happen, and we're going to fight it to the nail.
1: There's some other movement going on over in the Senate as well. Uh, Earlier this week on the program, we talked to Senator Josh Hawley about the infrastructure bill that is currently moving in the Senate and could find its way over to you in the House soon. And here's some comments he made this week, and then I want to give you a chance to respond.
3: Sure. This bill isn't about infrastructure. This is about the woke politics of the left. And this bill is part of their woke left-wing social agenda, you see it with this gender identity language that is in this bill. You see it with the Green New Deal that is in this bill. You see it with their quotas for this, that, and the other that's in this bill. So this is really about their woke left-wing agenda. It's about forcing that agenda on the American people.
1: Do you share his perspective on what the infrastructure bill has become?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's absolutely ludicrous that we have to have a conversation in 2021 about what real infrastructure is. In my book, it's always been roads and bridges and, you know, the things that we all collect use to engage in interstate commerce. Now you have things like a citizen climate core. You have the Green New Deal as the underlying basis for this garbage infrastructure plan. human infrastructure. It's bizarre. And it's just, again, a means to accomplish a political end game. When you are garnishing the wages of our children and our grandchildren to pay for your sky, you know, pie in the sky, um, ideas of that really are truly dangerous, Um, not just from a fiscal standpoint, but to undermine the very culture, the very fabric of who we are as Americans, that is very, very dangerous. So every American ought to be concerned about the fact that they're investing more in these these pipe dreams than they are in actual roads and bridges that have needed to be focused on and looked at for so many years. That is what is truly dangerous. And you look at the price tag attached to it, on top of the various COVID packages that we have had to spend, this is insane. Our country cannot survive this level of spending. We are literally garnishing the wages of our kids and our grandkids. Inflation is already starting to bite at Americans' everyday paychecks, and you're seeing it at the gas pump. You're seeing it at the cost of goods everywhere. We simply cannot afford this liberal agenda that Biden and his cronies want to push.
1: You pointed out earlier this week that uh, about $110 billion of this $1.2 trillion package is actually uh, designated for roads, bridges, tunnels, things of that nature. Now, I'm open to the possibility that something like broadband is also, in a modern world, uh, part of infrastructure. But however you slice it, um, most of it is not going to to what most of America, I think, understands infrastructure to be. But there's all the social policy embedded in this. And one thing, uh, Transportation Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg, he says that as part of this bill, it's dedicated to fixing the racism physically built into some of our highways. Uh, Do you know what he means by that?
2: You know, I, I don't know what a racist highway looks like. Um... He'll have to explain that one uh, a bit to me and others. And, and I'd like to think that I'm, I'm a, pretty smart, but a racist highway, racist buildings, still not quite sure what, what that's all about. But um, yeah, the, that's again, this is the liberal, the liberal left's agenda. They want to make everyone feel like they have somehow been a racist their whole life and they didn't know it, that this is all about social warrior justice programs. And that's so dangerous. Why are we as Americans standing for this nonsense? We are better than this. And I'm telling you, if we continue down this path, this unsustainable path, we have a lot of challenges that we face as Americans. We have the threats from China, from Russia, from adversaries who would love nothing more than to see us fail. But our debt, which is approaching $30 trillion, That is becoming, if not already, our number one national security concern. We have seen history um, time and time again prove that when we get overextended, our nation will fail. We've got to get the spending under control. We've got to get back to the basics. And quite frankly, if we don't, we're destined for failure. So on our watch, hopefully with conservatives leading the House next Congress, we will not allow that to happen.
1: Representative Kat Kamick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all you do for us in Washington. Appreciate it.
2: Appreciate it. Have a good one.
1: And we will continue to track that. Uh, This weekend, the infrastructure bill is going to uh, potentially um, move out of the Senate. There's a lot that's going to be happening in Washington, D.C., despite the fact that it's August and we're moving into the Capitol. Now, coming up after the break, which part of the Affordable Care Act is the Biden administration trying to change? And why are they trying to change it? That's a conversation we're going to have with Connor Semelsberger when we return to Washington Watch. We'll see you then. When it
4: comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply Scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. God
5: is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro maps
6: Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm is in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. How do you in advance how do you advance an unpopular political agenda like abortion, for instance, without people knowing it? Well, one way is through fine print in your health insurance plans. A proposed health and human services rule might force you to unknowingly pay for abortion in your health insurance plans, even if you object on moral grounds. In essence, under the proposed rule, quote, insurers would be able to collect payments for both abortions and legitimate health care in a single payment. Why is that an issue? Joining me now to answer that question is Connor Samelsberger, FRC's Director of Federal Affairs, Life and Human Dignity. Joining me in studio, Connor, welcome back to Washington Watch.
0: Great to be on with you, Joseph.
1: So tell us why uh, single payment by insurers for abortion and other services and le- real health care uh, services is a problem.
0: Yeah, well, we have to take a step back to Obamacare passing in 2010. And the only way it got passed was with the the support of the pro-life Democrats. And they did a really sneaky thing, what we call an accounting gimmick. They claimed, well, we'll allow abortion funding through Obamacare plans, but the payments for abortion will be collected separately from the funding that us taxpayers send to pay for abortion plans, or Obamacare plans, rather. And so when it came time for the Obama administration to enforce Obamacare, they interpreted the law, which directly said the payments must be collected separately to mean together. And so while these funds were supposed to be collected separately, uh, that never happened under the Obama administration. They continued to allow the the payment for abortions to be collected in the same exact payment, in a byline, Mm -hmm. with all the taxpayer-funded portions of Obamacare all collected together. And so that was such an unfortunate thing. And when the Trump administration came around, they noticed this right away as an issue. And they rewrote the regulations to make sure it was clear that these two payments were separate. And now, unfortunately, right now, the Biden administration is picking up just where the Obama administration was and reverting back to a really bad interpretation of the law to say, we don't care what Congress says about Obamacare. We, the regulators, know better, and we're going to hide that these plans cover abortion and collect all the payments together.
1: Now, obviously, the thing that the Obama administration and the Biden administration have in common and are are different from the Trump administration is that uh, Obama and Biden support abortion, and Trump did not. Now, what's the advantage to a pro-abortion administration to managing their money effectively
0: this way? Yeah, well, it allows them to hide, actually, which plans on Obamacare cover abortion us pro-lifers fought tooth and nail to make sure abortion was cut out of Obamacare completely. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because of the pro-life Democrats. Um, but their goal is to hide that these plans cover abortion. And so part of it is the transparency aspect. If you don't know that your health insurance plan covers abortion because the payments aren't separate, Little do you know, your monthly premium that you're paying for health care actually subsidizing maybe not your abortion, because you're pro-life like us, but other people in your state's abortions. And so it allows more people more money going towards abortion that otherwise, if they knew, would not be funding abortion. And so a group like us, FRC, actually came up with a website called ObamacareAbortion.com that you can log on to and actually find which plans on the Obamacare exchange cover abortion, because if you left it up to the Obama administration, you wouldn't know which plans do cover abortion or not.
1: Now, this wasn't actually a small detail in Obamacare, if I remember correctly, because there were uh, Bart Stupak, there were a couple other folks who were were in Congress at the time who were committed pro-lifers, though in the Democratic caucus, and the margins were so thin on Obamacare that this was really something that was negotiated carefully and purposely. It wasn't kind of an afterthought in Obamacare, and because of the way that's being enforced or not enforced now, uh, is it fair to look at this as a broken process? promise of Obamacare?
0: It really is. They wanted to make clear to the American public that Obamacare would not force abortion. Here we are almost 10 years out from the program and look where we are. Millions of dollars each year are used from our taxpayer funds to subsidize abortion Obamacare. And it's likely to only get worse as we speak with this infrastructure deal you just mentioned. uh, The Democrats are trying to lock in even more tax subsidies beyond what we could ever imagine for these plans on Obamacare that cover abortion. So I would say, yes, it is a broken promise.
1: If if the language of the Affordable Care Act uh, says that they have to be done separately, but the administration is trying to put them together... Is that something that can be litigated? Has there ever has this issue gone to court?
0: Yeah, so that's a key factor, right? So just like when Trump was rewriting the regulations to be pro-life, he was being sued instantly to hold those regulations up. Fortunately, he had some victories and some of those rules got to go in place. But that's exactly right. Um, it was sort of the tail end of the administration, so the litigation didn't play out under Obama. But with this new proposed rule to sort of carry the torch uh, from the Obama administration, uh, for sure we would expect some litigation uh, against this role because it's pretty clear, not just in the text, but the congressional intent that said, we don't want this to be collected together. And so that's what we're hoping for.
1: We're talking to Connor Semmelsberger And Connor, Connor, um, does this accounting mechanism make it difficult to actually know how many abortions are taking place?
0: Oh, it really does. Because At least with the Hyde Amendment, we know those are through government plans, exactly. So we would know if an abortion is funded through Medicaid, for example, a big program. But with Obamacare, it's a lot of these private insurance companies on these exchanges. We have no idea uh, how many abortions are being funded through Obamacare plans at all, unless the states are able to provide the data. So that's the thing. It's all wrapped together. Make the payments together, not let people know what plans cover abortion, not track the abortions. We really have no idea where uh, these abortions are being performed and if they're being used used with our taxpayer subsidies. So that's just an old, a whole goal of the Obama and now the Biden administration.
1: And, and I think the abortion industry in general is always trying to mainstream abortion. Uh, they, they object to the idea that it would be treated differently than anything else because they want it to be treated as quote unquote health right? We know it's not, but that is the constant tug of war, it seems, in this debate. Is it going to be treated as health care or is it going to be treated as something different? And I think we're seeing that in a different way here. What's the next step? for this proposed rule. I know that uh, Family Research Council has submitted comments. It's kind of a comment period, I believe, right now. What's the next step for this? What should we expect?
0: Yeah, so luckily we're able to put our public input into these rules, and that's what we did. We put on behalf of all of you at home why this is a bad change to this regulation to c- collect these payments uh, together. And so we did that, but next steps are they will now have to answer the feedback that we gave. The, the Health and Human Services will have to answer that feedback, they will then provide a, what we call a final rule, uh, and then they'll set a, a, a date for that to be implemented. But that's where we, your voices need to be heard, because that's when the litigation might happen. Yeah. To at least slow this down and make clear that the congressional intent. Can the public give comment? They can. However, that period has just closed, unfortunately. And so we're sort of beyond that. But um, be, be, stay tuned for future uh, opportunities to add public comments to these regulations, because this is just one of many that the Biden administration expects to do to undo all the legacy that the Trump administration left us with making our laws fully pro-life.
1: Connor Semelsberger, really appreciate your time and you're updating us on all of it. Thank you. Thank you. And we will continue to track this. Uh, it, I hope it makes you aware of how important it is to have people on Washington, on the Hill, in DC, tracking these issues uh, for you. Because when it comes to rule, the whole process, uh, we don't have time to do it ourselves. We need people helping. Coming up after the break in Texas, are the legislators that fled the first time gonna have to flee again? We'll talk about it. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day
4: from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm sitting in for Tony today. Well, the saying goes, don't mess with Texas. Perhaps the motto should also be applied to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who had something to say to Texas Democrats who had previously fled the state in advance of his plan to call for another
0: special session. Must put aside partisan political games and get back to the job they were elected to do. Their constituents must not be denied these important resources simply because their elected representatives refuse to show up
7: to work.
1: As you may recall, about 50 Texas Democrats left Texas in order to prevent the legislature from enacting election integrity legislation. Now, Governor Abbott has called a second session that will include not only the election integrity bill, but six other pieces of legislation as well. How are the Texas Democrats going to respond this time? Joining me now to discuss this is the president of Texas Values, Jonathan Sines. Jonathan, welcome to the program.
3: Hey, Joseph. Great to be with you.
1: Hey, it's great to see you. Um, Give us an update. What's the lay of the land there? What's going to happen in the second special session?
3: Well, look, the Texas Republicans are going to get down to business. Whether or not the Democrats join them, we still have to wait and see. And and, and there are a few Democrats that are here. I was at the Capitol earlier this week, and the Republicans that are here are unified. We're talking about the Save Women's Sports issue. A lot of members of the legislature want to address the issue of gender modification for children, that's been a growing concern in our state with no regulations in place. And election integrity is a huge issue across the state of Texas as as far as the country as well. And so, look, the special session starts tomorrow. As a matter of fact, at noon, a second special session is being called. That's because the work didn't get done. Uh, The first time around during the first 30 days of the regular first special session, the the Senate took care of their business, but not enough Democrats were there in the House to take care of things. And so we're going to have to wait and see how it goes. But, you know, I think uh, the Democrats are running out of time and they're running out of options. And it's time to come back to Texas.
1: Well, I'm assuming you say it's time to come back to Texas. I assume they came back to Texas after the first special session expired. Is that right? They actually did return?
3: Uh, I don't know. I mean, there have been some that have been here all along. Some have been back and forth. But the first regular, excuse me, special session just ended today. They just gaveled out and they're going to gavel in a new one tomorrow. There are rumors that some of them are in Portugal and the Caribbean. So who knows where they really are, but they have not been in the Texas House or in the Texas Capitol Chamber. Not enough for them to get business done. But these are important issues. And the reason that we have a special session is because Democrats did a lot of things to delay and block things because they don't have the numbers to stop them through the regular rules and process during our regular session, which ended in May. We've got a lot of great information on this at TXValues.org. We're two blocks from the Capitol. We're going to be there every day during the special session, and we're going to stay committed as long as it takes to get it done.
1: Well, if they are committed to not being there and to preventing the the Texas House from doing their business, could uh, Governor Abbott call their bluff and essentially banish them from the state of Texas by calling special session after special session?
3: Well, look, he's committed. Governor Abbott is committed to call as many special sessions as necessary to get the work of the people of Texas done. That's election integrity. That's the Save Women's Sports issue. There's also a very important pro-life issue. You know, There's been a really huge increase in abortion pills by mail. Sometimes they're used by people that want to hide or be involved in sex trafficking. These are very big concerns that the Biden administration no longer wants to regulate these issues. They're very dangerous. That's an issue that's on the call that needs to get done. And so you know, look, there are a lot of things that the governor and other members of the legislature and law enforcement are exploring to, to penalize and to get the, the Democrats to come back. But, I mean, you've got school starting. Look, it's only a matter of time that they can continue with these delay tactics. And whenever they get back, the Republicans are united. They're ready to vote on these issues and get them done.
1: Now, Jonathan, I want to give you a chance to talk also about the uh, the, co- the heartbeat bill that y- you guys passed there in Texas, which I believe goes into effect on September first. I know you and many others worked really hard on that. Uh, tell us what's going on. What do you expect uh, the result to be because of that legislation?
3: Well, we're very excited in Texas about the Texas heartbeat law. You can find out information at Texasheartbeatlaw dot com. That's a website that's set up for this particular law, it goes into effect on September 1st. And it's very simple. If a heartbeat is detected, the unborn life's baby and that baby is protected. And so, but look, it's different in some sense that other states have passed heartbeat laws like this, but they have a different mechanism. In the state of Texas, we use civil enforcement in the Texas heartbeat law. That means the government is not involved in the equation of enforcing this law. When you take the government out of the equation, you lose the ability to say that there's a constitutional violation. That should keep this law from getting uh, held up in court and struck down as unconstitutional. And on September 1st, we can get down to the business of enforcing it. You know, there's over 50,000 abortions in the state of Texas, and a heartbeat can be detected as early as six weeks. It's a very simple concept people understand universally that the heartbeat is an indicator of life and they think it should be protected, be protected, whether it's inside the womb or out.
1: Now, one other question. Uh, I understand. I believe that the first special session really focused on the election integrity bill, and that's when everybody fled the state. There are six other pieces of legislation here, including COVID relief. Do you think Governor Abbott included that? Uh, to make it more painful, uh, politically more difficult for the Democrats to leave the state if part of what you're trying to accomplish is a COVID relief?
3: Well, look, Governor Abbott has been around our state of Texas for quite some time. He was on the Texas Supreme Court. He was the attorney general of our state. He and his staff are very well what it can take to get things done. They've seen some of these maneuvers before by Democrats. And so I'm sure they're going to be looking at a lot of different options, if you will, to make it hard for the Democrats to stay away, entice them, if you what you will. And so and a lot of these issues should have bipartisan support anyway. I mean, when it comes to elections, it should be easier to vote and harder to cheat. And that's a very simple concept. This bill has things in it that we have in other states
1: i got to cut you off. We are out of time. Yeah. Jonathan signs, president right. of Texas Values. We'll do it again. Stay with us. We're going to talk about thinking biblically, about parenting in a new world. What
4: is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media. Even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash irf to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom.
6: Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly. Vote our biblical values and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray Vote Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray Vote Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org.
8: Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family Radio Network, Radio the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. We took a little break in July from our typical worldview segment that we end every Friday show with, but we are back with it today and happy to have with us David Klaassen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. In studio, David. Welcome back.
7: Hey, great to be back with you, Joseph. Well, I hope we
1: both got some good R&R <laughs> in in uh, July, and we're back at it here in August. Y- you covered a lot of topics in, uh, in July that I think are worth discussing. The first one I want to uh, jump into, because it's kind of back-to-school season, and uh, my kids are gearing up for that, and uh, some schools have already started, but uh, across the country, um, people are kind of getting back into that mode. And you wrote... This topic about um, the duty of parents in education. Uh, First off, why why did you feel like this is a moment where that needs to be discussed?
7: Yeah. So, Joseph, I think, you know, there's a lot of issues we could talk about, but what a pertinent issue right now talking about education. Because I think coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, there's a lot of parents who... You know, obviously care about their children, care about the education their children are getting, but wasn't really sure what was happening in the classroom. I've heard so many stories uh, during the, the pandemic where parents, you know, were walking through the kitchen or walking through the living room and could hear what their children were learning. And, you know, these remote virtual learning. And frankly, a lot of parents were appalled. Uh, at the the revisionist history, the introdu- introduction of CRT in the classroom, uh, kind of the whole LGBT rights movement. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of parents that are kind of waking up now to what's been going on for some time. And I think what I wanted to write specifically to Christian parents is just to remind them that, indeed, you are the chief disciple-maker in your home. Uh, this, yeah. this is rooted in Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses uh, 6 and 7, uh, Moses, you know, when he gets the law, tells the parents that uh, with your children, you are to teach them God's law when you're uh, walking on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're just walking on the side of the road. And so I think you know, regardless of the situation, whether you decide to homeschool, private school, or public school – Uh, parents need to be viewing themselves as the chief disciple makers who are responsible ultimately for the type of education their child's getting.
1: Do you think that the church makes that point enough? Do you think that parents within the church see themselves that way, or is it necessary to remind them?
7: Yeah, I think it's necessary to remind, uh, all of us need reminders about things, but I think you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, as Christians, God calls us to be good stewards of everything right. that he's given us. Uh, but especially if you are a, a parent and you have children, uh, you are a steward of that child. and I mean, you are, you are a steward of the education they're getting. Ultimately, you're a steward of the worldview they're getting. And, you know, some of the, the polling that we've done here at FRC shows that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Only 21% of evangelical Christians who go to church have a biblical worldview. So if, if we have any hope of reversing that, it's going to be that we need to make sure that we're being intentional about passing down that biblical worldview to our children.
1: In what way? You, you, you talk about the the um, challenge with worldview and the fact that a lot of people in the church who say they have a biblical worldview may not, in fact, have a biblical worldview. What are the decisions that families and parents are making in your judgment that lead to that
0: result?
7: Yeah, I think uh, not prioritizing the local church is one of them. Uh, not prioritizing time together as families. Uh, you know, one thing that my family did when I was growing up, uh, we priori- my dad and my mom prioritized dinner time. Right. Uh, we had to leave our cell phones in the other room and uh, come together at the table. My dad would talk about the day and would be intentional about leading us in a devotional. And so I think we have to get back into the mindset of thinking how do we prioritize the limited time we have together a- as a family and talking about these big issues you know the ch- children uh, uh gen z and i guess the alpha generated the next generation that's coming up you know they're learning hearing about all these issues in the news media on youtube we have a whole generation you could say that's being raised on youtube they're, they're learning about these ideas uh without any pushback from a yeah. christian perspective and c- we can't just expect that the youth pastor or the church is going to take care of that yeah. we-, we have to take ownership of that in the home
1: yeah, and i think you know speaking as a parent myself um I think it's easy for people who were not raised in a tech in a tech environment. You know, I did, for those of us, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a, a cell phone until I was in college. So my entire upbringing, uh, there were there were no screens. You didn't have iPhones. You didn't have access to technology in the way that. You, um, that kids do now. And I think it's easy for us to underestimate the amount of influence that comes into our kids and, and really what amounts to competition. And you talked about being parented on YouTube. And I think that is the experience for a lot of young people today. And in in order to combat that, not only do I think responsibly, we need to build safeguards right. around the thing, the, the competition and prevent some of that competition from getting in, but we have to be really super intentional about uh, not just creating a void where they're not getting anything, but filling that void with good stuff, don't
7: we? No, you're absolutely right, Joseph. And in fact, you and I earlier today were in a meeting uh, talking about how now that we, have, you know, just a couple months ago we yeah. launched the Center for Biblical Worldview, right. And one of the reasons, you know, FRC has always cared about uh, the next generation and discipleship and worldview formation. Uh, but one of the things that we talked about is pretty soon launching uh, resources and curriculum uh, for the next generation because, yeah. the, the, you know, if we're not talking about this in the space of our families and in the context of our church, you know, no one else is going to – well, everyone else is going to talk yeah. about it, but it's going to be from a perspective that is antithetical to what the biblical worldview teaches on every issue that, you know, is out there.
1: That's right. Now, I want to change topics a little bit because we're going to basically try to catch up on a month's <laughs> worth of content here. And I want to remind people that the, the topics that we're discussing now were covered on our Worldview Wednesday blog. You go to frc.org slash worldview, which is the Center for Biblical Worldview's homepage right now, yep. frc.org slash worldview. You can read the blogs. Uh, every week we release at least one, but sometimes more than, more than yep. one, as we help people think biblically about the, about just the world that we're in. And you wrote an article this week that 's gotten a lot of traction, um, you and uh, FRC intern Jalen Morgan, and I want to give Jalen uh, a plug and actually i 'd like to give a plug to the entire, um, kind of the entire internship program here. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a young person listening or watching today or you know a young person listening or watching today, uh, we find some exceptional talent from all over yeah. the country that uh, comes in uh, year round that comes to help our team and also gain valuable experience and connections and so if that 's interesting to you. Uh, yeah. Your young person or you could be uh, part of the Worldview Wednesday discussion as well. But you wrote a blog uh, this week, uh, and the title was "Does First Corinthians Six Nine Really Condemn Homosexual Sex?" And based on the title, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that it's done pretty well in the online forums, right? What? Tell us about this question for, for people who may not know what First Corinthians six nine says uh, off uh, from memory. Why are we discussing this? Why is this an issue?
7: Yeah, so um, you're right. It got a lot of attention. I think that that title definitely drove some of the attention to the blog. But I think it was important, uh, and this is just a good example of what we do here in the uh, biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. If there are discussions that are taking place on whatever the issue is, uh, we want to be thinking about this, thinking about this well. Uh, There was a documentary that came out uh, not too long ago called 1946, The Mistranslation uh, That Shifted a Culture. And so this documentary got a lot of attention. What the documentary essentially said is that the uh, RSV, the Revised Standard Edition uh, Version of the Bible, that came out in 1946, uh, essentially got it wrong when it came to translating the Greek words in 1 Corinthians 6-9, uh, which mentioned homosexuality. Um, and what the, the documentary argues is that the, the two Greek words that appear there, uh, malakoi and arsakonoitai, uh, should have been translated sexual pervert uh, So the verse where This is the verse that says Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral uh, Nor idolaters nor adulterers Nor men who practice homosexuality And, th- and then it goes on uh, Will inherit the kingdom of God And what they, what this document is arguing Is that, that those terms should have been uh, Translated to mean sexual pervert And the argument is that Therefore the Bible doesn't actually condemn Homosexuality Okay
1: What's the response to that? What I mean is that true? Are we supposed to are we are we learning something now that for all of Christian history um we've actually misunderstood what the Bible actually means says about this subject?
7: No. No, we're we're not. Okay, we're not. Okay. We are not. And you know, it's actually um a pretty poor argument if you actually look at the the linguistic argument that the documentary is trying to make. Yeah. Um and let's actually just think about this. Pretend 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is not even in the Bible. You still have other verses uh, that talk about homosexuality. Uh, Obviously, Romans 1 is a well-known verse. Uh, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 1 Timothy talks about it. Um, But even in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the the, the words that are used, um, uh, Robert Gagnon's written, uh, I think, the definitive work where he shows that those words used in context are referring to the passive and active partners in a homosexual relationship. Um, and it's, I think it's just very clear what those Greek words mean. And In fact, I argue this in the blog, even first century usage outside the Bible, whether this is Philo or... Uh, just secular Jews in the first century, when they used those terms, they were referring to homosexuality. And so, again, the, the, the argument that there was a mistranslation in 1946 yeah. and therefore we should throw out 2,000 years of Bible interpretation, it holds no uh, intellectual water.
1: Well, it's a strange mm-hmm. argument from history that they're making because the implication uh, mm-hmm. is that um, we basically misunderstood history. Um, and, 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 and now what we know is that homosexuality is okay. Um, and, and, and they seem to be suggesting that all of Jewish history, all of Christian history, everybody else had gotten it wrong. And just now have we discovered what it, what the truth is, which is kind of an arrogant position,
7: isn't it? No, it's an arrogant position, one that shows they don't even understand basic church history. This reminded me just a year ago, if you remember, when Mayor Pete Buttigieg was running for president, and he said, well, you know, I've read my Bible, and the Bible says that life begins with breath. Therefore, I'm pro-choice. Well, wait a second. For 2,000 years, the, the Christian church has affirmed the personhood of the unborn because of all these different texts, uh, Luke 1, Psalm 139. And so it's an argument – in this documentary, mm-hmm. that is just not even aware, maybe if they 're aware they 're just uh ignoring it yeah. uh two thousand years of the interpretation of these texts and again that 's why joseph uh yeah it was important to write about this because whenever something like this uh is published there 's going to be people that wow may- maybe you Christians have gotten this issue wrong, and maybe you know we need to rethink our position well no. And I think it's important to, to engage. You don't want to just watch a documentary like this and say, well, they have no idea what they're talking about. No, let, let's hear out the arguments Correct. and then try to see what, what does the Bible actually teach on these issues. Yes.
1: I, I think that is the, the right approach. Even when you, when you see – when an argument seems ridiculous – The correct response is not to just dismiss it by saying that's ridiculous. We need to engage arguments so that we can demonstrate to others as well as our own community within the church. We're not afraid of arguments. Bring all your best arguments. We want to hear them. But here's why it's not necessarily true. But there's an interesting instinct, um, and I don't even know who made this documentary. Do you know that?
7: Uh, I think it's a group of mostly uh, theologically liberal scholars based in a university. Okay. But...
1: Well, regardless of who their specific names are, there's this instinct broadly amongst like those who would call themselves the Christian left. Um, why is there this desire to change the meaning of Scripture rather than just say, hey, I don't believe the Bible anymore. Um, I'm not a Christian. I'm something else. I'm nothing, whatever it is. Why is, why is there this focus on trying to convince people that the Bible doesn't actually say what it pretty clearly says, and everyone has understood it to say for thousands of years.
7: Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we talk about all the time the you know, only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Well, one poll that our colleague George Barnett said that 51% of Americans think they have a biblical worldview, yeah. which means that a majority of Americans still kind of hold the Bible in high regard. And so I think kind of the, the Christian left that they've Uh, They've adopted the default position of our culture. They're uh, in lockstep with the moral revolution. And I think there's this desire to, you know, we want the Bible to be on our side for these uh, morally progressive arguments that we hold. You know, people like to cite the Bible Mm -hmm. as as something that's on their side to back up their arguments. Even though I think we are in many ways in a post-Christian culture, there's still this desire to say, well, the Bible's actually on our side. The the church is on our side, uh, even if it's not.
1: What do you think is the uh, proper way to think about a biblical sexual ethic? Because we're talking right now about homosexuality, but biblical sexuality and the subject of sexuality is, of course, much broader than that. Um, what's the biblical perspective on human sexuality?
7: Yeah, and, and I wrote about this more at length in one of our Worldview series booklets, which you can find at frc.org slash worldview but essentially, you know, we, I think we need to think about sexuality as just God's good gift to humanity. Uh, sexual desire is not a bad thing. Uh, sexual desire is, is a good gift from God, and God, graciously though, has given us boundaries. Uh, he's given us guardrails uh, that if we operate, and you, I think I've heard you even describe it as a playground. You know, we have a fencing around the playground. Then once you're in the playground, as long as you stay within the the, the fences and the guardrails and the boundaries, you, know, you can honor God in that. And you know, sexuality is a good gift from God uh, to bring a man and a woman together um, in in marriage, uh, and then to bless them with children that come from that uh, that that union. And that that's God's good design for family, for marriage, for sexuality. And unfortunately, we're in the middle of this moral revolution right now that has really upended how we okay. think about that.
1: I have also heard it discussed as kind of a fireplace, right? Hmm. And, and when a fire is in a fireplace, it serves a really valuable purpose and does something good. Once it's uncontained, once it's yeah. outside the fireplace, you've got problems. Very quickly in a few seconds, why is the biblical sexual ethic
7: good for everyone? It's good for everyone because it's, it's one, uh, it's an example of God's common grace that it essentially sets up society, it sets up families, it sets up marriage for thriving, for flourishing. And again, this is God's common uh, grace gift uh, for all people.
1: And that's a really important point that, that I think under is the foundation of all biblical ethics is when we say no to one thing, when God tells us to say no to one thing, it's because he's encouraging us to say yes to something else. And that something else is always, always better. Yeah, absolutely. David Clawson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Joseph. And thank you for joining us today. We hope that you will have a blessed weekend. And remember, everything that God says tells you to say no to, it's because he has something much, much better for you. Go find out what that is. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council
3: 7234.